you know, not just the egregiousness of the act, but coupled with the fact that here we go again and again and again and again. It's like, when does it stop? You know, it's like, how much more can the people endure? Welcome back to the Thriving Lawyers podcast. We have a guest today who I know very well and I consider a friend. He can tell you otherwise, but no, uh, no. <laughs> it's the definition of our relationship. But uh, we have Sidney Evering on the podcast today. He's a lawyer with Parker Poe. Sydney, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Sure, sure. So Sydney works at Parker Poe in the Columbia office, and we met, I don't know, Sydney, maybe seven, eight years ago? Yeah, I think it's been around six or seven year ago, okay. Mark. Yeah. 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 Chris and I have done diversity and implicit bias programming for Parker Poe. Sydney was the diversity chair when we were brought in initially, and he's been involved with our programming even, even since he's left that position. It's been a great experience. We went on the road for these programs to different offices. So you and I have had, and Chris and Shara, yeah, Shara O'Neill, who unfortunately is not on the uh, podcast today, but we'll, we'll grab her later. In a, in a future podcast, but we've had plenty of time to talk about both, I guess, I don't know, what would you say, kind of trivial and fun things and also some deeper topics. So uh, that's why I wanted to bring Sydney on to the podcast today. I'll shut up now and let Sydney talk. Welcome, Sydney. Thank you. Thank you. Like I said, it's great to be here. And, and obviously, you and Chris have done a, a great job with the diversity training that you did for Parker Poe and very much appreciate it. I'm sure our folks learned a lot and we're still applying it to this day where it's very much needed. Yeah, we're going to talk more about that in a moment. And thanks for your, as, as I've told you and Char before, thanks for your trust in having us come in to do programming, both for lawyers and for the staff. And, and actually, I want to give Parker Poe a real compliment here is that we've actually done programming for the lawyers and staff together. Mm-hmm. on diversity and bias, which I think is pretty extraordinary for the, the law firm to trust that these conversations can happen together with professionals and with, uh, with staff. Obviously, a law firm is very complex, but ultimately we all work on the same team. So to leave staff out, I think would be uh, doing this, us all a disservice. So, so Sydney, I want to just start with you sharing uh, your journey to where you are now. And you can say where you're from and a little bit about yourself. So I'm originally from a small town, Orangeburg, South Carolina. It's not too small, relatively speaking, in comparison to other places in South Carolina. But I was born and raised there. I guess I first got interested in in being a lawyer. I had a business law class in high school. I think it was maybe around my sophomore year. And my teacher just noticed that I took a liking to it. And she subsequently arranged for me to shadow a, a local attorney gentleman by the name of Charles Williams. And he still practices there um, with his family, Williams and Williams Law Firm. So I shadowed him for a day or a few days. And again, it just continued to pique my interest and I ended up asking him for a job as a runner. And that became my first job in high school. And from there, his father at the time was Senator Marshall Williams, who was a, a prominent local politician. And once I went to college, ended up being a page for the Senate Judiciary Committee. From there, went on to law school at the University of South Carolina. And I was kind of, you know, on that path. And 
upon graduation from from law school, my first job was with the South Carolina Association of Counties. So kind of applied all of the contacts that I'd made at the General Assembly. And there was a, a nice fit there and did that for four, four and a half years and then lateraled over to Parker Poe, where I've been for the past 13 years. And I currently practice public finance and I do some economic development. And as you alluded to earlier, I also serve as the firm's director of diversity and inclusion for about seven, seven and a half years before I passed the baton on to Charlotte. Oh, wow. To I didn't know you Undale. did it that long. Yeah. Yeah. So I was kind of doing both. I was you know, trying to practice and serve in that role wow. for hard. a good little while. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Got to the time where I, I felt it best to, to pass the baton on to Char, and you know how energetic she is. So she's doing, she's off and running and doing a great job. Yeah. So, yeah. She's wonderful. Yeah. And as I said, we'll, we'll get her on. We would have loved to have had the two of you together. That yeah. didn't work out, but we'll, been cool. we'll definitely get her on soon. How fortunate for you to have that teacher and, and then the lawyer that you got to work with early on. Yeah, to have. yeah. I don't know if you'd call them mentors necessarily, but boy, that really helped you get on your path, didn't it? Yeah, shout out to Mrs. Hugini down in Orangeburg. <laughs> yeah, she kind of set me on my path. Shows you the power and influence of educators. Yes. And then the lawyer, you shadowed a lawyer, is that right? Is that what you said? Yeah, shadowed a lawyer, Charles Williams, a very prominent attorney down in Orangeburg. His wife was Karen Williams, who was a Fourth Circuit justice judge. And unfortunately, she passed, but she was a, a trailblazer and just a great group of people to, you know, cut my teeth with. Are you ultimately glad that they put you on the path to become a lawyer? <laughs> yeah. You know, I... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> just asking. I, you know, for, for people who listen, who know my story, I, I decided I wasn't glad to be on the path to being a lawyer. I'm always curious about folks who are still practicing, whether it's something they still enjoy. Well, you know, it has its days like any profession, but ultimately, I still wholeheartedly believe that practice of law is a noble profession, offers you the ability to really help people. It's a trade of service at its core. The ability to do that is where I garner the most satisfaction. Yeah. We talk on this podcast about well-being and thriving. I bet you what you've said there is that that's a touchstone for you that you go back to to remind yourself why you're doing it and bet you that helps a lot as far as thriving and, I don't know, staying in touch with your core. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, generally speaking, for the most part, people, they don't uh, contact lawyers unless mm -hmm. there's a, a tremendous need. And so you certainly want to try to help people out when they're in need. Yeah, that's true. Lawyer, uh, folks, for therapists too, which that's what I am now, folks often are most often coming to lawyers and therapists when they're generally not in a good place, not happy, need help. And you have a family, right? I do. Yeah. I'm married to my wonderful wife, Wendy, going on 17 years of marriage. And we have, mm -hmm. no, actually going on 18 years of marriage. Pardon me. Sorry. You better get uh -oh. that right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Be 18 in, in September. And we have two boys, a 16 year old and a soon-to-be eight-year-old that, that keeps us busy, to say the least. So what do you do to take care of yourself? What works for you? Because it's a tough job. And I know for seven and a half years, you were wearing both hats, which I can't even imagine. But even since then, being a lawyer is tough. And I know you said you see it as a trade, and it, it's evolved a lot over the years to become more of a business. And for some firms and for some lawyers, it's lost that connection to what it used to be. So so what do you do to take care of yourself? 
Well, a couple things on a personal level, it might seem kind of odd, but just as a stress reliever for me, I just like to go out and hit golf balls. I, I don't play the game very well. <laughs> but, you go to the driving uh, range? Yeah, I just do? go to I go to a driving range and I just yeah. <laughs> swing away for an hour, an hour and a half. You don't care if it dog legs? Or, no, or, no. It's just it, or, you know, or it's, it's a worm burner or any of those. Exactly. There's no stress <laughs> that the ball needs to land in a particular place. I play some of my best golf on the driving range. <laughs> Because I'm not able yeah. to take it to the course, <laughs> right? But yeah, so that that's a, just a personal relief for me. As far as just other endeavors, I do a good bit of, of community service, just serving on boards and getting involved in community organizations, and that's just a way that I feel like I can give back or pay forward. Informal mentoring here and there for younger lawyers, kind of filling them in on things that you know I wish I had known when I was their age. And that brings a lot of satisfaction because Mm -hmm. I'm starting to see a a lot of these young lawyers that I first met in their first year of law schools have now matriculated into mature lawyers who are really doing good things in the community. And that gives me a brings me a great deal of satisfaction. So, yeah, I'm sure that's very rewarding, similar experience. But we talked a couple of days ago. uh, We had a really wonderful discussion, probably for about a half hour or so when I reached out to you about doing the podcast. And this is going to be a bit of a jump to this topic, but I think we had such a great discussion about it a couple of days ago. I, I asked you whether you'd be okay if we discussed the murder of George Floyd and mm-hmm. um, Breonna Taylor and Ahmed Arbery, you know, all the other and names um, go on and on, countless. unfortunately. They do. Yeah. They do. And I just think, as you do, it's such a critical topic now and that it would be completely tone deaf for us not to talk about it on this podcast because it, ob- it certainly does deal with thriving yeah. uh, and, and, and surviving. And I have to say, before we get into it, I'm nervous about having this conversation with you because it is... Well, it's an important topic, as I said, and I want to make sure that I'm respectful and and I don't do any harm to you or to the folks who are listening in any of my questions or comments. So uh, I just wanted to put that out there, that this is something that I'm taking with great seriousness. I appreciate that. But in the same token, I I do think a lot of times, and this by no means meant it's a criticism, but just a, a general thought. That when we do approach these conversations, sometimes we may approach them too delicately. You know, sometimes we mm-hmm. need to have the, the tough conversations and, and not soft pedal and not feel like we walk on eggshells. And and some things may be said that, you know, may step on some toes. But that's I think that's the only way you can really get down to the root of, of some of these issues and and hopefully begin to heal. I, I appreciate your your sentiment, but please. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I know uh, we both respect each other, and and I won't intentionally do anything, but I just wanted to put that out there and yeah. let you know where I, where I'm sitting here. Today. Absolutely, I appreciate. It. I guess let's just start with how you're doing with this, and when then we'll just go from there. I'm doing better than I was initially when George Floyd video made its way to the rest of the world. I think I, I had a gamut of emotions, and you know, I was upset, angry. Sad, frustrated, disappointed, exhausted. It was just a, just a string of emotions. I, I think I told you when we spoke, I, I remember 
sitting in my office, like I think it was a Friday and I was no good. (laughs) I just kept zoning out and just just found weight and heaviness of kind of just sadness, I guess would be the best adjective to use. And it's just primarily it was because it's just, you know, not just the egregiousness of the act, but coupled with the fact that here we go again and again and again and again. It's like, when does it stop? You know, it's like, how much more can a people endure at the hands of a group of people in law enforcement that are are supposed to serve and protect? As I also alluded to when you and I spoke, there was a degree of hope gleaned from the fact that the response to this one, this tragedy felt different in a sense that so many people, uh, diverse people, came forward to demand justice and and really to demand a a change in the way law enforcement engaged with communities of color in particular and just just how they operated overall. So it leads me to be hopeful. And of course, you have to remain hopeful in in any circumstance. So that exhaustion for me turned to energy and I felt compelled and energized to try to do my little part to bring forth some change in any way I could. So, And, and that's kind of where I remain just energized in that sense, like we just can't continue like this. And, and when I say we, I mean the entire country. This stems from the original sin of this country that has never fully been dealt with. Now it's beyond time to really deal with it. Of course, the original sin you're referring to is slavery. And- right. I would say there is an original, original sin, which is the genocide of Native Americans. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. Who are we've, often we've, lost in this conversation. The United States has a history, bad history, of exploiting and white supremacy. So just going back to how you initially reacted, Sydney, what did you do? I know you said you had like a cocktail of emotions, exhaustion mm-hmm. and sadness and anger. What did you do for yourself? Did you reach out to anybody? Did you talk to anybody? I did reach out. You know, my wife and I, my family, we discussed it amongst ourselves. Having a 16-year-old who just Mm. got his driver's license, it really hit home, really resonated. And I think most Black families have had what is now referred to as the talk with their children, with their sons in particular, on how to interact with police officers and law enforcement. And before I go further down that path, I just want to say this. Police officers by far are some of the most courageous folks that you will ever come across. And you talk about heroes. There are many heroes that were uniform. So this is by no means to be critical of all police officers, but there's undoubtedly a bad contingent as there are in any profession. And what makes the bad contingent among law enforcement so dangerous, obviously they have the power to not only take freedom, but to take lives. And unfortunately, they've done that far too many times in the black community and communities of color and essentially gotten away with murder in many cases. To me, their standard should be as high as it can be in terms of how they decide to use force and and when they use force. Kind of getting back to the conversation my wife and I have with our 16-year-old who just got his license and this conversation we've been having with him for years now, at least since he was maybe 11 or 12, if not younger, to talk on how do you interact with police officers? If you're ever pulled over, you have to be respectful, keep your hands in sight, no sudden movements. Even if you come across an unfortunate incident where you, you might deal with the police officers acting overly aggressive or unprofessional manner, 
that whatever you do, do not return that anger because I don't care how much you're disrespected. We want you to come home uh, and we can deal with the, the fallout afterwards. But it's, it's a very serious conversation. It's a, I don't want to say a fear, but sometimes it amounts to a fear, but it's a, it's a very serious concern that my wife and I share. And, and it's, it's not unique to us. It, I think it's shared by the black community in general. How did he react to the talk? You know, he's very quiet by nature. We've done our best to raise him right and protect him like any parents would do. I don't want to have his bubble bust. If he lives long enough as a black man in this country, it will be at some point or another. And, And my heart breaks for him in that regard because I just know that day is going to eventually come. Someone is going to say something or do something that reminds him what it is to be a black man in this country. And I've tried to prepare him for that. He's lived a somewhat sheltered life. I try to tell him that the real world can be cold, harsh place. And you need to be prepared for that, especially as a black man. So he took it in stride as he always does, but just kind of quiet. And I asked him if he understood. And of course, he understands. But sometimes you just never know how you're going to react until something like that happens to you. Right. And I've heard it said, Sydney, that you you don't necessarily just have the talk once. Oh, no. And be lucky if it's just once a week. Almost literally every time he goes out, I remind him. And I, I thought about that. I'm like, it's really a shame that we have to drill that into him. It's almost like the biggest boogeyman out there is law enforcement. And that's a shame because, like I said earlier, most police officers are very good people. They are heroes. Few bad apples have so broken the trust of the community and just given this bad perception that we're having these conversations. But these conversations come out of incidents that have gone on for for decades and centuries in in our communities. Let me first say I agree with you about the police. I actually I know of two former police officers, one in Portland and one in Charlotte. The one in Charlotte actually is a social worker now. And and I've interacted with plenty of police officers who are doing their jobs and in a very humane way. And they remember that part about protecting and serving. Mm-hmm. And you had mentioned a few, a bad contingent or a few bad apples. Do you feel it, because this has come up a lot in the conversation now, that there's a systemic issue with law enforcement? Because that's been the discussion. Because a lot of the, I guess, more conservative folks will say, oh, there isn't anything systemically wrong with law enforcement. It's just that there are some bad people. What, what do you think? About no, I, I do think it's systemic. When you think back to the genesis of law enforcement, particularly in the South, it rose out of slave patrols. So there's always been that kind of tension with law enforcement and communities of color that over the years have manifested into some horrific interactions. It's almost like there's been such a breakdown in trust. And I speak from a black man's perspective that Sometimes when we are approached by police officers, we're approached with the presumption of guilt, right? And, and we have to prove our innocence. And so we have these biases, and you, and you know very well about implicit biases that I think are on both sides of the equation, so to speak. We have been programmed as a country from the time we're very young to see black men in a particular light, and it's usually not positive. You know, we're seen as criminals athletes or entertainers and not too much more outside of those 
three realms. When I was growing up, I grew up in the 80s primarily, which was the height of the, the crack epidemic in this country. And I remember, you know, watching newscasts every night and you see black people that were being arrested or strung out on drugs and was this war on drugs and Nancy Reagan and just say no and, you know, all of these images that were just embedded in young and impressionable minds. To this day, you still have these type of negative images that are associated with black males, and they have a very real effect on how we are treated and perceived by people, not only in this country, but all over the world. I remember growing up, you would always hear this statistic that one in four black men are either in jail or in the criminal justice system. And I remember that as a teenager, that was just kind of just stamped in my mind. One in four, Mm -hmm. one in four, one in four. Mm -hmm. And even at a young age, I was like, why don't they ever talk about the three and four that are not? Hmm. Why do they always talk about the one and four? Mm -hmm. You know, where's the balance there? You know, where where are the positive black male images? Where are the positive stories about black men? And And not just, as you say, not just the athletes and entertainers. Yeah, yeah. But all of that plays a role in the way that police officers who are human beings, who have their own biases, how they see and approach people of color, black men in particular. And then in our own communities, we have the stories of being harassed by law enforcement and being abused in many regards. And so we have our defenses up. And then when these two individuals meet who bring all these biases to bear, you have a situation that can very easily go off the rails. One of the people has a gun or exactly. more than one. Exactly. One of the one of the people definitely has a gun. Right, right. Uh, the police officer. Just had some conversation with folks in law enforcement. Mm-hmm. For me, I think it's very important to tighten the pre-employment screening for police mm-hmm. officers. Because when you give someone the authority to operate behind a badge and the authority to take someone's freedom and take someone's life, that should not be taken lightly. And how have they responded to that <clears throat> when you've raised that with police officers? Many of whom have agreed. It changes from state to state or even, you know, local government to local government. You know, there's some areas that might reject a person for valid reasons and he can go across the county line and, and, and still get a job. Yeah. Not a very strong standard. If I'm a police officer doing my job and doing it well, mm-hmm. it doesn't help me to have these. Certainly, like, think of it if you're a lawyer, you don't want these lawyers out there who are being unethical and unprofessional Absolutely. and not doing their jobs because that puts it in a negative light. And it makes your job more dangerous in, in terms of being a police mm. officer. For me, if I was a police officer, it would make it all the more important that you stamp out the bad apples and you not just turn the blind eye or, or keep your hands in your pocket and just look away when your fellow police officer is doing something that's not right, unjust, illegal. You just can't turn a blind eye to it. And to refer to Brian Stevenson, he said that, and, and I'm not quoting him here, so I hope I'm getting this right, that the great evil of slavery wasn't involuntary certitude, it was the idea of white supremacy. Mm-hmm. And that goes to what you're saying, that this is, this is old stuff, this idea that white folks are better than people of color. It's unfortunately in our DNA, and that's going to take some work to change that, right? Yeah, it's bred in our DNA. You see it in every facet of society. You see it in movies. My friends and I often watch movies. And for example, some family members and I were talking this past weekend about old biblical movies. And and you see people of color, black people in particular, always playing the servitude role. All these images are just constantly reinforcing this white supremacy ideology that just really permeates the mindsets of 
most Americans, and they don't even know it. It's the implicit bias that we talked about earlier. They have these implicit biases and don't even know it. So, you know, when they walk down the street and a black man is approaching and clutch your purse a little bit tighter, you might not even know why you do that. That's right. And you, That's you, right. you don't have any forethought, oh, that I'm a racist or I don't like black people, but you're right. responding to something based on the way that you've been programmed your entire life to believe that black men are inherently dangerous. That's the end of part one of my interview with Sidney Evering. We'll have part two next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Thriving Lawyers podcast. We love hearing from our loyal listeners, so please feel free to email us any questions, comments, suggested topics, or guest recommendations at the following address, feedback at thrivinglawyerspodcast.com. The Thriving Lawyers podcast is brought to you by Real-Time Creative Learning Experiences, a national provider of continuing legal education and professional development programs that leave participants engaged, encouraged, and equipped to pursue meaningful and sustainable change in their practices, their lives, and the organizations they work in. And by Osborne Conflict Resolution, your experienced guides through the uncharted terrain of business and family law disputes based out of Charlotte, North Carolina. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Thriving Lawyers Podcast.